Good to be with you, uh, my family here at Grace, on this Wednesday night for Lent. And so this is Psalm 32, and if you would, we just watched it, but it's kind of good to just hear it in our ears again. So if you would, the psalm is printed for you at the front of your bulletins here. If you would just say this psalm with me together so we can kind of get that in our ears. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. And so, if you'll be with me here, what I'm going to do is just kind of outline this psalm a little bit, talk through just some structural things, and then give you some application thoughts that I've, I've thought about lately in the culture. Um, it's interesting during spring break, because I'm constantly talking to high school students. I saw Aurora singing up there, which was great. I'm always thinking about how can I talk to my students about what they will experience when they go to college or when they look at the culture. And this psalm has some stuff to say about that, I think, in the way that we live our lives and how we have to slow down and confess and be contrite in the face of an almighty God. And so it starts off, as I mentioned in our introduction today, with a rhetorical statement in a sense. It's, blessed is, and as I said before, many psalms have those phrases, this blessed is idea. Who is the truly blessed man? Or you could even say, who is truly happy? Now that word happy is a funny word. We tend to think of it as sort of a I'm giggling all the time, or I'm bouncing off the walls. I have my four-year-old daughter up here. You know, when she's happy, she's just being a goofball sort of thing. That's what we think of for happy. But happiness for the ancient world, whether it's for the ancient Hebrews, or for the Greeks, or for the Romans, had more to do with how you lived your life according to how you've been designed and according to your purpose. And so being truly happy was not just a feeling. It wasn't just bouncing off the walls. It was being able to look at your life and saying, I'm in a good state right now. I am in a good state of being. I am fulfilled. I am uh, fulfilling my created purpose. I am loved by God, or the, uh, I am a good citizen, and I am a good neighbor to those around me. It was a way of looking at your life. That word happiness has changed and shifted a little bit in our culture. And so because of this, it, what it does, it describes what people are like when they are not in that blessed state. And so it describes, in, in using physical terms, the spiritual state of one who's living in unconfessed sin. So in the beginning, you can see those words. You've got wasting away, or groaning, or heaviness, or being dried up. It's just one word after another of the state of somebody who's in despair. They're shriveled up. They have nothing left because of the weight of their sin. So this is someone plagued by conscience by unconfessed sin. And I'm going to just share with you, I have experienced this in my own personal life. I've had those moments where I know I needed, or I knew I needed, to confess my sins. I couldn't sleep at night. There was something that was unconfessed. I couldn't, I couldn't uh, sleep well, or I kept tossing and turning, or I felt hot. Or There's a lot of different descriptions of how that was. And then sure enough, I got up, you know, went over the, the day's events or the events of the last week and said, Lord, I screwed this up. And so, with a contrite heart, at least I hope so, I confessed those sins, and then I fell asleep like a baby after that. 
And so there's some of this that we've all experienced in our own personal lives when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, and so I need to confess those sins to God. I need to own up to my brokenness for sin. So genuinely asking God for forgiveness and mercy is the solution then to be truly blessed because this is, of course, only offered through the redeeming work of Christ and the victory in the empty tomb. So interestingly, there's also a contrast. I, I was looking up some study Bibles on this, and the English study Bible had a really interesting note on this. It says, when God covers sin, he graciously blots it out. When man covers his sin, he is sinfully hiding it. Isn't that interesting, kind of the ir irony there? So if you're the one doing the covering, it's not going to go so well. You're going to be like this guy sitting in your bed saying, I'm wasting away, Lord, I'm dried up, I'm heavy, I'm shriveled. But if God does the covering, takes the sin away. It's kind of interesting to see that difference, whether you're trying to cover it up or if God's the one who does the covering. So God takes the problem away, we make the problem worse. And our culture doesn't really help with this e uh, either. I looked at some data on this. We live in a culture that allows and even encourages us to surround ourselves with distractions. During the season of Lent, it's easy to get distracted. A lot of us either add something or give something up or say that we're going to have a renewed focus, but we live in a culture that doesn't really lend itself to that, for better or for worse. So we don't want to own up to the sin nature in our culture, and so we instead seek the next dopamine release. Most people are seeking that dopamine release, that little natural high, often now through media. That's where they get that dopamine release. And so I was looking up some data from Nielsen. In the Nielsen study, this is from August 2018, so just a few months ago. Um, American adults, notice this is an adult, this is not kids. This is an adult, because it would be interesting to try to stereotype kids, but this is adults. They spend an average of 11 hours per day watching, reading, listening to, or simply interacting with media. So if you had seven hours of sleep, and you heard me right, that was 11 hours, okay? If you had seven hours of sleep, and yes, I know some people get less than seven, okay? But let's just say that's your average, seven hours of sleep. That means only six hours of day are left on average when you're not on media or sleeping. Throw in meals, work responsibilities, family responsibilities, traveling, working out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see we don't really allow ourselves to groan all the day long, as it says in the psalm, because we don't allow ourselves to think and process who we are and who we are supposed to be in this world. I, th I find that fascinating. 11 hours. Then I looked at my own personal life and teaching in this high school here, and the amount of time I'm either grading, entering things into a grade book, or showing something on my Promethean board, or researching something, or getting a video ready, or doing some reading digitally. And it's probably true even for me some days that I spend 11 hours because from that, phone calls, everything else that's going on, I can see how that would actually happen, let alone for people who are even more glued to the screen uh, when it comes to those sort of things. And so our children, of course, young people, um, have learned from us. Video game addiction, outrage addiction, and other cultural disorders are on the rise, and we continue to see many suffering from loneliness and depression. I'm going to give you a scenario. This is a true story. We've, we've seen studies on this. It, um, this is from being addicted to outrage. Somebody wakes up in the morning. This is especially true for later teens or young adults. They wake up in the morning, their iPhone rings, so already you've got a media device, right? Your iPhone rings, it's your alarm, you pick up your phone, and the first thing you do is you check your messages. Not just work messages, but you're on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, you're checking those immediately as soon as you wake up. So you guys can agree with me, that's probably pretty feasible. So as you log in, there's a certain subset of our population that scrolls to news right away. So you go to the Facebook news feed or Twitter news or whatever it is, or even just uh, online blogs or anything like that, and they find their favorite story that they want to be outraged about. Okay, this is how you start your day. 
This is, this is, this is something that's been studied now. Again, it's, it's part of that dopamine release. Because you know that, right? When you get angry or you get outraged, it fires you up. You get kind of a little bit of a high from that emotionally. You get something that you can root into. So you're waking up in the morning, and that's the first thing you do. You search for that outrage. So then when you find the right story to be outraged about, you have to like the people that agree with you. Right? You put a heart sign or a like button or whatever, give them a thumbs up, or back them up and say, yeah, preach it, or something like that. And then, if you find the right spot or the right story, then you can make comments too and show everybody how righteous you are. And then when you're all fired up and outraged, then you're ready to get up and go to, get out of bed and go to work. I'm, and this is, a, this is a real thing in our culture right now, this sort of outrage addiction. We are addicted to that because it releases that dopamine. We, we're looking for a sense of meaning. And because we don't want to look at our own personal lives and look maybe how we're broke, or things that we can do to improve ourselves, or things that we can do in terms of our spiritual nature, for, for example, we instead are looking at the rest of the world and how the rest of the world is screwed up and how outraged we are at those external things. It makes it a little difficult to live this psalm, wouldn't you say? Just, just a little hard when we're in that, sort of, uh, in that sort of environment. So this sort of scenario or a variation of it occurs millions of times every morning around our country and around the world. This sort of idea of mindfulness makes it very difficult because we've been talking about that here at grace christian mindfulness mindfulness is really a reaction against that part of the culture this constant media bombardment this constant distraction scenario so be mindful sometimes it takes the form in eastern religions just meditate a little bit find 15 minutes a day to meditate or read a read a a, a hindu text just to make you think differently or maybe go out into nature and do some sort of kind of pseudo-Native American spirituality to make yourself feel one with nature. Those sort of things are very popular because it actually goes against the grain. It's countercultural against what we're experiencing in the rest of this world. So one of the ways Christians can be more mindful in a more positive way, instead of, for example, dabbling in some false religions or taking some religion from here and there, is to actually pray, breathe, and live the Psalms. This is a passion of mine, so I love the fact that I can, I can talk about this because this is one of the ways that I've been able to pray. For those of you who know me really well and hear how fast I talk and all the stuff that I know, my brain doesn't shut down, so I am horrible at praying. I'm just, I just, it's just hard for me to focus because I sit there and all of a sudden I've got Brahms 4 Symphony going off in my head. I mean, I'm that guy, or all of a sudden I'm memorizing all the, you know, I'm going through a map in my head or something, or I'm regurgitating the text I just read 30 minutes ago. I don't shut down easily, but when I pray the Psalms, I have a text in front of me, and even sometimes sing the Psalms, it changes that for me, because it engages my brain in a way, and I don't have to be the one that's creating content, if that makes sense. As a teacher, I'm constantly creating content. When I'm uh, serving at our sister church, Faith Lutheran, I'm constantly creating content. So the content is already created for me. My mind doesn't have to do that part of it. It's God's word that I'm praying back. It's God's word that I'm singing back. It's God's word that I'm using to confess my sins. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a quote. This is from Patrick Henry Reardon. He's an Orthodox pastor in Chicago. He's at All Saints Antiochian Orthodox Church. That's not really that important. Uh, but he's uh, a great pastor, and one of my college roommates went to his church when I was in college. So he's the one that connected me to him and his writing. He's a very good writer, and he writes from a, a mere Christian perspective. So he doesn't write just to Orthodox. He writes to all Christians. And he has a book simply called Christ in the Psalms. And so his resource is one of the first I went to on this psalm. And I'm going to uh, sum up what he says a little bit. This is going to be somewhat him and somewhat me paraphrased, paraphrased when it comes to this psalm. So such is the case, and when he says such is the case, he's talking about the centrality of Christ in this. 
um, when this psalm begins, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. St. Paul explicitly quotes these lines near the beginning of Romans 4 to illustrate the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. The Apostle's thesis here, as in Romans generally, is that we believers are not justified before God by our own merits, by the effort or our works, by correct and meticulous observance of the Mosaic law, but by receiving, in faith, God's gracious justification of us for, sake, for the sake of Christ our Redeemer. A Lutheran could have wrote that. Easily. That's like us. And this is an Orthodox pastor, which is crazy to think. But here he is quoting this psalm, making a connection to Romans, and showing us, hey, we got justification here. It's kind of cool. I, I, I got a kick out of that when I found that source. Okay, so Psalm 32, then, is the prayer of those who, standing at the foot of the cross and forswaying all righteousness of their own, commit their lives and entrust their destinies entirely to God's forgiving mercy, richly and abundantly poured out in the saving, sacrificial blood of his Son, because God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself, world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Such is the key to the proper understanding of Psalm 32. Such is the correct context for praying the rest of the psalm. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Our justification by God, then, is no legal fiction. It truly renders us holy, even glorious in his sight. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. And that's from Romans 8. Thus, Psalm 32 speaks of the justified as blessed, godly, righteous, and upright in heart. And so at the confession, you can rejoice. The Lord is my hiding place. That lift, those words that we used before, and I, I mentioned them, those groanings, the heaviness, the dried up nature of us, that wasting away, that's turned away, and it's actually turned on its head, so now we are being glorified by God. That should give us a sense of joy, I think, even during Lent, that we can actually experience that. So above all, the forgiveness that God grants us for Christ's sake is the source of our ongoing confidence for this same God will never abandon us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Our psalm thus speaks of the constant refuge we have in this God of mercy, no matter what the trials that face us. And then we have the next part of the psalm. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near to him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And it's an interesting word. I've had some conversations with folks in the high school and in the church or in different settings about the spiritual nature of what we're experiencing. So I've, and it's been kind of cool because the kids will ask me about, what are angels and demons? You know, let's talk about angels and demons. So we had a whole unit on angels and demons. And I actually did it with two classes because angels and demons were a big thing. And then they asked me about heaven and hell. And then we asked, and it's awesome to be able to talk about those topics. And when it comes to confession and the battles that we face in this world, one of the things I've been able to communicate is the spiritual nature of what we're facing in the world. See, it's easy to look around and say, well, it's because of that political climate, or it's because of that person, or it's because of that court decision, or that police force, or that person's educational background, or whatever it is. We can point out all these different flaws, but Paul in Ephesians 6 actually says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against those forces of darkness. 
And so if we truly believe that during this season of Lent, if we truly believe that this is a spiritual battle we're fighting, what tools are we going to use? And it's my, uh, it's my contention for you that the Psalms are a great tool in your, weapon, in your weapon belt to put these in there. Because if you actually pray, live these Psalms out, it's like a mini gospel. That's a Luther quote. He actually calls the Psalms the Gospels in the Old Testament. And he preaches on these for volumes after volumes. If you ever go to pastor's office, the Psalms cover up like a huge section of that chart up there. Because it really is that weapon in the tool belt. So... I want to kind of close on this because pastor has been emphasizing that not only are we journeying to the cross, but we're also looking to an empty tomb. It's not, it's, it, I mean, East, Good Friday doesn't really make a whole lot of sense without Easter. As Paul says, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain and we're men most miserable, right? There's no point unless there's an empty tomb. So this psalm, therefore, is, and it's interesting to say this in Lent, but it's true, is likewise a call to gladness. Joy is not just an option for a Christian, it's an imperative. As well as a gift of God, joy is a sentiment that the believer is commanded to engage. From the bleakness of his prison cell, Paul sent forth this order, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Thus our psalm, a canticle or song, celebrating the divine forgiveness of our sins, closes on the theme of godly exaltation. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So during the season of Lent, I hope you'll join me and really all of us here in recognizing that even though we are sorrowful and that we repent of our sins, we also have a great joy because we can know with confidence that our sins are forgiven through the cross and, of course, the victory of the empty tomb. To God be the glory. Amen.